Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. The Rewatchables podcast is officially back and will be coming to you every Tuesday in 2019. The season will kick off on January 8th with The Godfather, and you can catch up on all the recent episodes featuring Tombstone, Con Air, and All the President's Men. And with The Bachelor back for a new season, be sure to check out Bachelor Party with Juliet Littman for all related news and recaps. You can download and subscribe to both of those shows on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to GM3, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. It is Monday, January 7th of the year 2019, and I am joined by the great Mr. Michael Lombardi. Lombardi, how you doing? Hey, Frazier, I'm great. I am great. Big game tonight. You know, wow, four good games, three good games all the weekend. I mean, this is, this is fun. I mean, this has been fun so far. It's going to keep getting fun. Yeah, and uh, it was Wild Card Weekend. We promised you that we would come back and give Lombardi all of your reactions to everything that occurred. You mentioned that there were three good games. One not-so-good game, but it was good for the Indianapolis Colts. I assume that you're talking about that game. We're probably just going to do this in chronological order as we work through Wild Card Weekend, so we will start with that first game. Colts win 21-7. to Andrew Luck looks like he is back in full form. Uh, no punts in the first half for the Colts, and pretty much across the board. I mean, goes 19 for 32, 222 yards, two touchdowns, one pick, and uh, had everything rolling. Uh, we saw Deshaun Watson sort of running for his life a little bit. That offensive line struggled. A lot of people asking about Bill O'Brien and what that future looks like in Houston with Deshaun and Bill O'Brien, and what are they going to do about that offensive line? But all in all, all those questions, what did you see in this game between these two AFC, AFC South rivals, Lombardi? You know, on Friday, I didn't think that Watson would play bad two times against the Colts again. And I think the movement of the Colts' defense, their speed, I think bothered Watson. It was an athletic game, and he was not on a, he was unable to match it because, you know, they had some fast guys on the field, and everything was moving quickly. And when Watson has to play faster, you know, he loses accuracy with the football, and that's why, you know, he, he couldn't quite make the throws that he needed to make. And Look, anytime you throw the ball almost 50 times in a game, you're not going to play well. But I, I think the, the the thing that struck me, and it kind of resonated all through the weekend for me, was, and I wrote about it today in The Athletic, was the fact that Frank Reich is really a good coach. Mm-hmm. Like That third down magic in Philadelphia that isn't really magical anymore is now in, 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 in Indianapolis. I mean, it's freaking remarkable. They're 9 for 14 on third down. And, you know, the first third and 11, I go turn to Millie, and I say, well, they'll get this one. And, of course, naturally, they run a curl for 12 yards, first down, move move the chain. So, I mean, I, I came away from this game really impressed with, A, Wright's play calling, B, his toughness, and the way the team played complementary football, all three phases. And, you know, this Colt team isn't, I wouldn't say, I would say they're a year ahead of their progression in terms of where they're going to be as Chris Ballard adds talent to the team. But they kicked the Texans' ass twice, and they won in the offensive line against the Texans' D-line and their D-line against the Texans' O-line. And when you get beat at home twice in a row by the same team, you know what that means, Dave Fraser? What's that? They way better than you. Mm. They way better than you. Yeah, and you could see it. I mean, you just got to accept yeah. it. Mm-hmm. You got to accept it. You got to, you know, it's like Nick Saban told me one time, hey, bro. You know, the Bengals are just better than we are, whether you want to wake up and realize it or not. You know, and I said, you're right. And once they, the, the, the Texans have to wake up and say, you know what? We're, we really should be 0-2-1 against the Texans. Because if he punts it, we we're going to tie. So he gave us a game, and then he kicked our ass in the other two games. 
And if you look at the numbers in this game, Deshaun Watson goes 29 for 49, like you mentioned, 235 yards, one touchdown, one interception. The real problem was Hopkins in this game uh, was, was sort of missing in action, caught five passes, only 37 yards. So you pointed all that sort of stuff out. But I want to go back to what you said about Frank Reich because we saw after this game, they, they gave us the inside the locker room with the Colts. And Frank Reich, uh, you know, it was very stoic. And, and the way that he was leading that locker room, you could see everyone was locked in on what he was saying. He said, you know, this is just another chapter. You got to go par- paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence word by word uh, to create a story for themselves. And you could see it was, you know, sort of leaning into that underdog mentality that we saw uh, in Philadelphia and continue to see this season, actually. So um, that was all good. And then we saw uh, Jim Ursay come in. Did you see this when he when he came in and, and gave his? Oh, I loved it. Did yeah, you, loved yeah. It. Did that hype you up? I mean, that was something else. I think oh, Frank Reich was it. like, please, I, I just it. let me get the last word here. Well, I mean, I kind of felt like since the NFL has done a partnership with Caesars International, whatever they did, mm-hmm. you know, it was okay for him to come out and say he really was playing the over in the game, and he was disappointed his team didn't get the 31. I just, you know, that, it's all out in the open now. So I appreciated him being honest, if that was anything. I mean, maybe that's good for the Me locker too. room. Yeah, that's what you need to hear. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about the third down stuff. You talked about the, this Colts team, and you look at some of these guys like Inman, Ebron. They seem to always know where the sticks are when they're running those routes. And is, is that something that, you know, comes down to coaching and little specific things, and that's just what Frank Reich has been able to bring to that building? Or is it one of those things where if you have a quarterback like Andrew Luck, he's savvy and smart enough in the huddle to say, hey, make sure you get to this yard mark, or, you know, before you make the cut or whatever it may be? Or, or, or is it just simply things are working out and Andrew Luck is making the right throw? and the Colts continue to keep it rolling. I mean, they always seem to have the right play called at the right time. I mm-hmm. mean, it's just fucking remarkable. I yeah. mean, I don't know how they do it, but they just seem to do it. And, you know, you know everybody plays sticks. I mean, that's the that's one of the major uh, 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 plays. They play the sticks on third and eight. You know, don't give a, you know, force the ball in front of the sticks. Okay, great. We did that, you know. Uh, and yet he, he, they still find a way to make plays. And it's just flat out remarkable. I mean, it's, it's the sense of how he teaches it. It's the way he calls the game. And he's often talked about it. And from talking to some people, you know, he calls the game like he played it, right? Mm-hmm. So he played quarterback. He kind of gets a feel for it. He runs for 200 yards in the game. And he never really went into the game plan thinking he was going to run it. You know, he just went into the game figuring out how they were going to play. He adjusted what he was doing with his play calling. And look, that's one thing that the Texans haven't been able to do. I mean, I was talking to somebody in the league last week and they're like hey look the texans offense is really a high school offense it's very basic it's very vanilla they do some things but they don't you know and i'm not i'm not calling out bill o'brien here whatsoever what i'm saying is by calling it a high school offense they're limited by a lot of shit that happens with that that law that law firm of lamb and davenport the two tackles kendall lamb and julian davenport the left tackle ain't good Mm -hmm. and they play soft and they don't play with any power they can't win up front. And you could just tell from the first drive of the game, they couldn't get control of the game. They could never get control of the game. And it did come down to the trenches, which most people pointed out going to this game because these teams were uh, both so even. A lot of people are looking at draft boards now, trying to figure out who they're going to bring in to help uh, on that offensive line to kind of protect Deshaun Watson as much as they can. One of the bigger names that has come out is uh, Ole Miss's uh, tackle, Greg Little. So that's something to keep an eye on there. And also, if you just wanted to see a, a demonstration of how much you know this game came down to the trenches, just watch that one play where you get the Quentin Nelson, who's a rookie, obviously a guy that's been talked about being possibly the offensive rookie of the year, pancakes to Davion 
Jadeveon Clowney, a guy that's going to be a free agent and get paid a lot of money this offseason, and he just takes him down to the ground. And from there on out, it just seemed like that Colts offensive line had a lot of confidence. And despite going up against Clowney and uh, going up against J.J. Watt, they were able to make things happen and, uh, you know, kind of run it down their throats a few times. They kicked their ass, Kate Fraser. I mean, and look, let's be honest. I mean, the reality here is, is that Watt, as long as the game went along, they just, you know, they wear down. I mean, we talk, they have no depth. I think, too, the fact is when you look at the Texans and, and you evaluate them and you see what they've been able to accomplish, losing all those draft picks, you know, ha- not having, you know, having to trade away picks to dump the heist, having to trade away a bunch of picks to dump, to dump, to, to move up to get to Sean Watson. They trade, you know, they're, they're short. The depth of their team hasn't been very good. And I think that that's been a real issue. And I think when you look over the drafts and, you know, and some of the things that have happened, I think they're going to have to get away to where they can catch up a little bit with the league because they have some really good players, some really talented players, but their depth is not very good. And that's what kills them. And, and when you look at it over the last, you know, from 2014 on, I mean, I think that's really where they've struggled the most in terms of, you know, from 14 on, they've had four, they've had four first round picks, Watson, Fuller, Kevin Johnson, and Clowney, you know, Johnson was hurt most of the year. Fuller is a great player, but he can't stay on the field. Mm-hmm. You know, we know Clowney's good. Then their second rounders are Cunningham, Martin, McKinney, the, 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 the guards, the Philo from UCLA, he's not on the team. And so they've, they've kind of like not been able to hit and they need to come back with these guys. And I think that they're going to have to have a really good mid-round free agency where they're getting some good players and good value, kind of like what the Colts did by signing Danico Autry. I mean, they need guys like that. That will, yeah, step up and, and play a major role. I mean, I have to ask before we move on to the next game, is there a world in which Bill O'Brien, it all starts to come and people start pointing fingers at him? Because I have seen a little bit of that. Because uh, Deshaun Watson was oh. not really getting the vitriol, neither was Hopkins, and a lot of people were saying, what's Bill O'Brien doing? And, uh, you know, there there have been rumblings and rumors before about uh, his job safety there in Houston. Well, he won the power struggle last year. I mean, Rick Smith was the Rick Smith was always the golden boy in, in, the, in the Texans organization. His wife got sick. He had a lead, but even though, and we hope Rick's wife is better a year later, certainly mm-hmm. that, but it became, it, the, the owners of the Texans, the, 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 the McNair family, Robert passed away, Bob McNair passed away just recently, mm. but their son now takes over. He made it very clear last year with their decision that, hey, he was going with Bill O'Brien. In fact, nobody thought that Brian Gain, the general manager, would come back because they weren't really a favorite of him. They fired him there, and O'Brien wanted him back, which tells you O'Brien won the power struggle. They brought back Gain to be his general manager, and I think next year, and I think as they move forward, it's going to put more pressure on Bill, but I don't think anything's going to happen to Bill. They just made that decision last year. Yep, so they're going to you know, stick with it, run it back, and they won the division. So as much as people are a little upset in Houston about how it all played out, I mean, the Colts are one of the hottest teams in the NFL right now, so uh, they came down to Houston and made it happen again. Let's stay in Texas as we uh, continue rolling through these wildcard games. Next game, we have the Dallas Cowboys uh, win this one. And one of the worst uh, late game covers you'll see in the world of gambling. Uh, I'm sure Jim Irsay will tell you about that if you were to ask him. Cowboys win this one 24 to 22. It was a game where Ezekiel Elliott basically has done what he's been able to do against certain teams, especially teams that are not the best at uh, dealing with the run. Uh, 17th uh, DBOA for the Seahawks coming into this game. Elliott. 
Picks up 137 rushing yards uh, and a touchdown and uh, on 26 carries. Also had four catches for 32 yards. Uh, pretty much was the man in this game. Dak Prescott getting a lot of headlines uh, and a lot of people very proud of him for some of those timely timely runs late in the game. Had a really uh, big scramble there on a uh, third and 14 uh, that everyone was very excited about. Reached out and got lucky that the ball didn't get hit. So uh, everything worked out well for Dak and for the Cowboys and for the Clapper. Looking at this game, Lombardi, I mean, the Cowboys kept the Seahawks in it somehow, but uh, what was your main takeaway, and do you think there is some confidence and, and maybe a little bit, of, little bit of momentum coming out of Dallas uh, as they move into the next round? You know, I do think there's momentum coming into Dallas. I think Dallas played really well. I mean, Dallas, you know, they finally got Dak involved with the, with the run game, which is what I've been screaming about all year. Dak is a hard guy to tackle, and he ran the ball at Mississippi State. He can throw it, but when you make his play leg in play when you have to defend him as a running quarterback a little bit. And I'm not talking about Lamar Jackson running quarterback. I'm talking about run some loaded option with them and do things with Elliott in the backfield. That becomes a whole different ball game. And it becomes much more problematic for the defense coordinator to handle. And in this game, to me, I think and what we talked about on GM street on Friday, this game was perfectly handicapped, you know, in the sense that we knew Seattle wasn't going to be successful running the ball. They had 24 carries for 73 yards in the game. But really, when you break it down, they had 23 carries for 44 yards. So that's 23 bad plays. That's a lot of bad plays, right? Mm -hmm. And then people say, well, Russell Wilson threw for 233. Yeah, but 53 of those 233 came on an absolute brain fart by the, the Cowboys defense, which we never saw the replay of. You know, and so I don't understand how it actually happened because I saw like a ground level camera. I never got to see it. But, you know, they had 180 yards with a minute to go in the game passing. And we knew, we knew, we talked about that Seattle's lack of intermediate passing game, middle range passing game was going to be problematic. And it was. And Wilson could have thrown play action passes all game long. They just didn't call any of them. Mm -hmm. And people get pissed off at Brian Schottenheimer. But look, that wasn't Brian Schottenheimer. This is what the Seattle team has done all year. This is who they are. And this is what they do. And so I think that when you break it down, you've got to be able to understand that they just played within their identity. They didn't try to change anything. And I think that, that that's what happened. And Dallas now, as they move forward, I mean, their defense played really well last week. Dak played really well. Elliott, to me, is one of the best players. I mean, I look, how Elliott doesn't catch 12 passes a game, coming out of the backfield, running wheel routes, running option routes, running slants as a receiver. I mean. There's so much more he can do in the passing game. To me, as dominant as he is a runner, he could be even better as a pass catcher. Yeah, and it's a it's a situation where when you have a guy like Elliott, you know, who is similar to a Le'Veon Bell type, and you got a guy like Dak Prescott, who you know at his best of times can be like a Cam Newton type player. Uh, it's hard to stop, and they basically beat the Seahawks at their own game, being able to p possess the football and be able uh, to get in the end zone and make some uh, nice scores. You mentioned that Seahawks offense just 11 first downs in this game, outgained 380 to 299 on the day. That long pass that you talked about was to Tyler Lockett, uh, 53 yard bomb that didn't. Uh, we did not get to see the full replay on that. Uh, so that was interesting. There was also some uh, some comments that were made after the game about some of the the calls, uh, like a, a non-call and a deep Russell Wilson ball uh, where a Seattle receiver got knocked down. And, you know, people were pointing to one of the officials who was from Dallas who was who was commenting on the game. So there's always just some drama going on in Dallas, as you can only imagine, Lombardi. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, but look, I think I think I disagree with Mike Ferreira. I think that was pass interference on the interception by KJ by KJ Wright. I mm. think there was. There was contact before the ball was there. I think the receiver that was thrown on the wrong shoulder. I think there was contact. I think the one thing that was good about this weekend, even though the officials Corrente 
couldn't get the call straight in the Bears game. We'll talk about it later. I think they made the right call because they blew the whistle, but that not notwithstanding is they let them play. I mean, we didn't get a lot of ticky-tack crap, you know, and that was good. And I think that was a good thing. And so, you know, I think they missed that call, but the other calls I didn't feel like were bad. I thought there was pass interference on the inside route by Cooper. I thought there was pass interference on Cole Beasley. I don't know what anybody's complaining about, you know, mm-hmm. and but they pushed off. I think they let these teams, I think Houston got banged around a lot by the Colts. I think they let them play, which I'm all in favor of. And I will say congratulations to Michael Gallup because I have seen them try to throw that pass to him so many times this year uh, unsuccessfully, and he finally got that touchdown catch, and that was really the difference in the game for the Cowboys, and that was obviously a nice win for the Clapper and for Dak Prescott, and you could see the excitement on uh, all those young guys in Dallas as they move into the divisional weekend. Let's get to the Sunday games. The next game we have, we have the Los Angeles Chargers, a.k.a. the Carson Chargers, taking on the Baltimore Ravens. Going into this game, Phil Rivers very excited to be on the road, enjoys playing on the road, and we saw uh, some of that excitement and, and uh, some of his behaviors, you know, he chased down a punt to mark where, where it went out of bounds at one point. We saw him do a delayed first down, uh, you know, reaction to let everybody know that they got the first down after he ran for his longest run of the season. Um, so it, it was a lot of fun if you were a Chargers fan in this game. A lot of frustration for Ravens fans, some boos in the crowd as Lamar Jackson struggled to find his footing early on. Later in the game, though, was able to, to get some stuff going and ended up actually with uh, 194 yards, two touchdowns and just a pick. Um, look at this game, Lombardi, the Chargers look like a complete team, and they do look like a team uh, that you have to reckon with as you move into uh, the AFC Championship realm. And Phil, Phil Rivers said he knew about the record against Tom Brady, and he was excited to take it on. Um, so when you hear stuff like that, a lot of confidence coming out of that Chargers bunch. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not sure why. I mean, if you would have told me before the game, <laughs> oh, you know, if you would have told, told me before the game that the Chargers were going to have 33 carries for 89 yards, yeah. That, that Philip Rivers was going to throw for 160 yards, less than he did the last game. And they were going to score, basically, and they were going to be bad in the red zone. They were going to be one for three in the red zone and one for two in goal line and score 23 points. I would have said, well, I think the Ravens are probably going to win this game. You know, and I, I, I kept waiting for the Charger offense to play better. They never did. And got to credit the Ravens defense. I mean, the Ravens defense played well, but this game really came down to Look, I love Lamar. He played horrible. There's no doubt he was inaccurate. I think the offense wasn't very good design buys. But the fact is, they couldn't block the Chargers. I mean, Melvin Ingram was impossible to block. They mm-hmm. matched him up on every bad offensive lineman for the Ravens. And I think that's the untold secret of the Ravens. I think, you know, Ozzie's stepping away as the general manager. I think Eric DaCosta comes in, and he's and no one's more politically connected than Eric DaCosta. He could control the Southern pro- I mean. I think the Costa could get the ball built. I think he's ruining. I think he could go down to D.C. and figure out some way to stop this work stoppage in the government. He's so politically well connected. Mm-hmm. But that being said, the talent level on this Baltimore team isn't very good. I mean, it's really. We know the older players, the Weddles, the Suggs. You know, some of these younger, but offensively, they're not very good, and they can't block anybody. Ronnie Stanley's the first round pick, but hasn't really played very well. You know, and you look at him and you say, "Wow!" And so. To me, this game was about the Chargers winning that game up front with a kick the ass of the Ravens' offensive line, and that was the story. And then once the Ravens got it going, I mean, it's almost hard to imagine that the Ravens have the ball with 40-some seconds with a chance to win the game. Yeah. I mean, and if Justin Tucker doesn't miss the freaking field goal, they got a chance to tie the game. 
It was a very un- yeah, no, it was a very uncharacteristic afternoon on both sides of the ball. Where you know you've had this you know offense for the Los Angeles Chargers have been able to carry them all season, but they weren't able to figure it out. I mean, you talked about the goal first. We had a goal line stand where they ran the ball three times and they they don't get in, and then when they do score, Melvin Gordon, the play before that, it almost was returned for a touchdown. Uh, but then the ball was down. He was down by contact because Eric Weddle got a piece of his foot. And then, you know, he scores on that fourth down. They go for it on fourth down and they score. Um, but there were so many little moments in that game where uh, it, it felt like the tide would turn and that Baltimore had a real shot to get a win there. Uh, Lamar was great down the stretch, you know, trying to make some big throws to keep them in the game. And Phil Rivers after the game, you mentioned, you know, they shouldn't be excited. I mean, he wasn't very excited with how they played. I mean, he he just basically mentioned that, you know, the reason that they won the game was for everybody else, including the defense and, the, and that front seven for them being able to get pressure because they struggled on offense. But again, like you said, I mean, the Ravens are the best, definitely the best defense in the AFC, possibly the best defense in all football at this point. Um, so all in all, uh, it, it was a very back and forth affair. But but Phil Rivers and the Chargers move on. So uh, people were very excited about that in Los Angeles, as you can imagine. Should we get to the the final game, the big story, uh, the one that everyone is freaking out about, the Eagles taking on the Chicago Bears? Are you ready for that, Lombardi? I'm ready for it, but I, I do want to say I think that the I think John Harbaugh, if he signs a new extension, I, I think he's got a really and I and I got a you know look I, I I tweeted at halftime. I thought it was time to that they could have used Flacco to throw it, and you know he didn't do that, and I think he did the right thing. I think I was I was definitely wrong there. I think that the team loves Lamar. I think the team in that locker room loves Lamar. Now, that being said, Lamar's going to have to earn their, their love next year. But 7-1, and one, Lamar earned them. And I think they, they knew it wasn't all his fault, even though he didn't play very well either. You know, And so I, I think that John Harbaugh, if he signs this extension, and there's so much bullshit about he's going to get traded all that, you know, that, which I'm not sure is true. I think that the reality here is that he better find somebody. And I'm going to let you in on a secret, Tate Frazier. Mm-hmm. It ain't Marty Morning Ray. Yeah, He needs to find somebody to help run an offense that'll allow him to maximize what Lamar Jackson can do. And is, should he hire Bobby Petrino from Louisville? That's not a bad thought. I mean, Petrino's a really good offensive coach, and he knows the kid. Mm-hmm. You know, and and he's called games, but they're going to have to change what they do offensively. They're going to have to change it, and if they don't, then I think it's going to be problematic. Yeah, and we have seen that before where we get a college coach brought on to be the offensive coordinator. We saw that with Ryan Tannehill down in Miami not too long ago. So there's a chance Petrino could do that. I do want to mention out two other guys in this game uh, that are familiar names. Michael Crabtree called both those uh, garbage time touchdowns from Lamar. And Antonio Gates had a pretty big day on uh, some big third down plays. So, they, uh, you know, Phil Rivers at the end of the day still has old reliable and Antonio Gates. So that's something to keep an eye on as you move forward. And now let's get to the the big showdown of the weekend, really. A lot of... A lot of big fan, a lot of Bears fans out here, a lot of Eagles fans out here. I was at a place where they were oh, bickering man. back and forth. You can only imagine uh, what that was like. A lot of emotions. Uh, in this game, Eagles down fifteen to ten, five minutes remaining, and Nick Foles. I mean, has a chance to to conjure up some magic again, uh, and he was able to do so uh, throwing to a guy by the name of Dallas Godert. Uh, and then also Nelson Aguilar was able to make some great plays. Zach Ertz as well. Golden Tate ends up making the final catch that ends up getting them. The win, the Eagles, of course, uh, continue. You know what was interesting about that yeah. play, Tate Frazier, not to interrupt you? No, no, what please. Was fascinating about the last play of the game. It's just the Eagles have this incredible, uh, I don't want to call it luck. They're really, you know, they have last year, 
the Falcons have the ball first and goal with the nine, mm-hmm. and they can't score, right? The Eagles have first and goal with the two, and three plays, they can't get the length of my dick, right? So they can't get anywhere, right? And yep. so now they turn around, and they run the exact same play, the exact same play that the Falcons ran on their fourth, fourth down play, and they get the touchdown. The Falcons, Julio Jones runs, stumbles in the route, and can't make the play. I mean, it's just so ironic, isn't it? That they run the same play that the Falcons couldn't run in the same situation, the same style of game, and on a visiting field, and they win the game. And it was a very eerie situation too, just because of the score. I mean, it could have it was seventeen fifteen when the the Falcons ended up losing. I mean, it could have been the same thing. It ended up being sixteen fifteen Eagles, but that was because they went for two to make sure that if the Bears did indeed kick a field goal, it would be a tie game, and and they don't get that. It was interesting to see. Doug Peterson and Nick Foles, again, be able to just make this happen. And I mean, you, you mentioned the word luck. I mean, a lot of people would point to that, but I don't know. I mean, it continues to happen. It just seems like once Nick Foles gets locked in, he's not afraid to throw the ball up to Alshon Jeffrey, as we I've mentioned plenty of times on this podcast. But uh, they find a way to win, and they never look afraid of the moment, no matter what was happening. I mean, the Roquan Smith, uh, that was the one play I wanted to ask you about and what you thought about that one. He wrestles the ball away from Smallwood and runs it back for a touchdown. Uh, they say he's down by contact. It was a pretty bang-bang play at that point. They didn't blow the play dead there, which was good. And then we have the long pass play where Trubisky links up downfield, and it, it, they go and review it. They say that it was, in fact, the catch because he made a football move, took about four or five steps. But then they blew the play dead when he gets when he fumbles and the ball is stripped, and the ref ends up picking it up. And you mentioned that you agreed with that, de- that decision. But what's the point of ever blowing the play dead in, in any of these situations? Because we do have the reviews. We do have the challenges. Everything is there to be reviewed after the fact. So why blow, blow a play dead and basically – I don't know. I mean, it, it played a big impact in this game because the Bears don't get the ball down there and have a chance to score a touchdown. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, and look, the Eagles would have recovered the ball. They were the yes, only ones around exactly. the football. So and it goes both the, ways there. The back, judge, the back judge is coming in, and he's signaling incomplete, so why not, why pick up the ball? I mean, if they would have given the Bears the ball there, that would have been such an injustice. Mm-hmm. That would have been just so unbelievable, you know, to do that. I mean, it wouldn't have been fair. It was There was no way they should have had the ball at that point. but. You know, they, they did. And I mean, look, I think that uh, uh, when you go back and you examine it, I mean, they, I think on that drive, didn't they get a field goal on that drive, Kate Frazier? Yeah, a field goal. I mean, they, yep. they, they got a field goal. I mean, and they they were, you know, they were able to, he scrambled, he got a first, it couldn't get the first down, they kicked the field goal. But, you know, when you go back and look at this game, and I think when you look at the Eagles season, the last six weeks, I mean, this defense has been really, I mean, Foles is getting all the attention, right? But the defense has played phenomenal. I mean, they, the Bears had 16 third downs in the game. 16. Like, that's, you can't have 16 third downs. The Bears were over three in the red zone. You know, what do we talk about playoff football, winning playoff football? We talked about this. Got to be really good on short yards. Got to be good on third and short. Got to be really good on red zone third downs. Got to be really effective in the red zone. Got to make plays in the kicking game. The Bears did some of that. But they didn't do it all. And, you know, people say, well, Trubisky got better as the game went on. I mean, look at the drive charts. Look at the they had too many three and outs. They're five for 16 on third down. Couldn't put the ball in the end zone. And you can say whatever you want. And Bear fans are all pissed off because I'm like, why would you want to play the Eagles? We talked about this, Dave Frazier, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. You know, and I love this commentary. Well, you got to play to win every week. Seriously, dude. Like, shut the fuck up, right? <laughs> Seriously. You know, like, mm-hmm. Nagy's quoted as saying, He's quoted as saying, 
we're going to monitor the game and we're going to make a decision at halftime. Yes. And they did. did. Mm-hmm. And they decided to keep playing. And people say, well, he benched starters. I mean, maybe they're watching a fucking different game than I'm watching because I've seen Khalil Mack running around the fourth quarter in the game. You yeah. know? Yeah. Like they should have played the Vikings. People are like, oh, Lombardi, you, you, if he would have made the field goal, you would have never been able to. No, bullshit. No, seriously, bullshit. It had nothing to do with the field goal business. It had everything to do with who do you want to play? Who's the better team? Your pro personnel director should have walked into your office and said, Matt, we should avoid the Eagles at all costs because they're playing their best football this season. Now, I think we can beat the Eagles. I'm not saying we can't, but I would rather have Kirk Cousins than have this hot Eagle team come to Chicago. That doesn't mean I'm scared of the Eagles. It just means I get a choice here. I like vanilla or chocolate. I'm going to pick chocolate. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm doing. Like, what's wrong with that? Why is that, you know, I mean, it's like saying, you know, it's like, I mean, Custard had this fucking logic. You know, well, yes. there's a bunch of them over there. What the hell? Let's just go. I did see a lot of people responding and saying, you know, if you want to be the best, you got to beat the best. Uh, but when you have the the choice, maybe not to play the best, and you are in control of your destiny a little bit, and you can play a division rival, a team that you've had their calling card this whole season. I don't know. Maybe you make that decision. That that's really what it came down to. And maybe there's a little bit of bravado that came in there, where the Bears thought that they were good enough. It didn't matter who they played. But you saw in this game, the Eagles had been there before. They were not afraid of the moment, and Nick Foles delivers again. I mean, despite throwing two picks in this game, one of them was that Roquan Smith ripped interception, but he continued to make big plays and big throws, and that offensive line, you talked about the defensive line for the Eagles, the offensive line, same thing. I mean, Jason Kelsey and these guys, I mean, they're keeping Nick Foles Foles standing up, and he's able to stand in the pocket and make throws down the field, and uh, that really made the difference in this game against that Bears defense. It really did, Tate. It really did, Tate Frazier. I mean, the, the, the Eagles offensive line hung in there, you know, and they, and they had a nice plan. They, they got off to a good start. They got the field goal. They executed on third down, and they were able to make some plays. But for me, I, I think when you watch it, you know, and, and look, I've said it all year. I think the Bears are a really good team. I think they got better. They managed Trubisky much better. And you can say whatever you want. When you watch the game, and they're going to say all the right things about Mitchell, but they didn't want Mitchell to affect them. And the guy tried to throw three interceptions. Mm. I mean, seriously. I mean, one interception in the end zone, Hit the kid between the numbers, you know, and they've done a good count. Will they get better? Yeah. But here's the other point about Minnesota. Like one thing about Trubisky, he's, he's, when he's had multiple reps against an opponent, he gets better. Like, so why not have him play Minnesota for the third time? Yep. Yep. You know, why have him play Philadelphia? I mean, I mean, it's just, to me, it didn't make any sense. And, you know, the fact that they, they lost the home game, you know, to a team that they shouldn't have let in. To me, was it had nothing to do with the kick go, going off the wall. Now, we're now calling the kick that was blocked. There was a Zabruder film. The Zabruder film from the Kennedy assassination appeared. That you know, we finally have uh, someone on the grass. You game know, of inches. The ball. Hit a fingertip. Yes, yeah. it was claimed after the game. And you mentioned Mitchell. So Mitchell goes thirteen for twenty, one hundred ninety-eight yards, and a touchdown following the intermission. He has that pass that you mentioned that hits a guy in the numbers in the end zone. Nick Foles throws a similar pass. His gets picked off. So if you have all that happening and you're playing at home, sometimes you just feel like, hey, maybe there's something in the air. Maybe it may not call it luck. You may not call it you know, whatever momentum. But it just feels like things are going to go your way. And then they get the kickoff return. So they stop the Eagles from getting two. Now they have a chance to win the game. 
They kick it off. Tariq Cohen, a guy that is beloved in Chicago, a guy that is somehow is able to make big plays no matter what. We saw it earlier in the game. It was the first seam, seam route that Mitch, Mitchell threw a pass and a guy caught the ball and it just kind of set the tone that, hey, we can throw it down the middle of the field. But in this one, he runs it back. Big take, big return. People were, you know, going wild. And then two back shoulder throws to Allen Robinson uh, between defenders, Trubisky. And it sets up this 43-yard field goal attempt. Uh, and Doug Peterson does something that I've, I've seen that it's been a little bit more taboo than it used to be in the past. It used to just be a given. But he does ice the kicker. And I have to ask you as a coach or as a GM or operations, whatever you may be in a building, what do you say to your kicker when you know you're going to get iced? Don't kick it, right? Well, so he kicks it, and, he's, yep, and he kicks it right through the upright. And when you do that as a kicker, it's a mental game. It's like golf. I mean, you get in your head a little bit, and he kicks it right through the upright. He gets iced by Doug Peterson, which was a great decision by Doug Peterson. People didn't know if he was going to do that or not, even though he has been prone to do that. And then he comes back, hits, hits the next one, hits the left upright, hits the bottom. The mascot passes out, and the season is over, and it happens just like that. And a lot of Bears fans were freaking out when he kicked the first one, especially that it went through. Uh, it's better when you see it miss the first one because then you can course correct a little bit. Um, but it, it was a it was a big time moment, and we've seen it in the playoffs before. We've seen the Vikings do this not too long ago. I think that was in 2015 when that happened. But to hit the upright right at the end of the game, I mean, it, it just breaks your heart, and you could see the frustration uh, on Nagy. But this is a young Bears team, obviously, so they have stuff to look forward to as you move on. But the Eagles, yet again, I mean, Doug Peterson's wearing a chain in the locker room popping champagne, having a great time. And it, it just seems like they're playing with a certain amount of confidence that, you know, Tim Jernigan and Michael Bennett and these guys up front are going to continue to dominate where they can win games by only scoring 16 points. I mean, yeah, it's really, I mean, they're playing their best football of the year. Now, can they, can they continue this? I mean, I think the, the, the Saints game will be more challenging, mm-hmm. but I don't think the Saints are going to blow them out like they did the first time. And I think the Saints can put some pressure on them. It'll be a tougher venue to play than even Chicago. But look, this is the Eagles play like champions, and champions are hard to beat. And when you have a champion down, you better kick them down. I mean, look, there's a reason why, you know, that they, in the beginning of The Godfather 2, they were searching for that little kid, mm-hmm. you know? The mafia knows that if you don't take care of all the family, somebody's going to come back to get them. Same thing with champions. You don't take care of them, some, they're going to come back to get you. That's what happened. I mean, they got, uh, they got, they got, they got duped. I mean, they really did. I, and, and it's really, to me, every, People take it the wrong way. It's not, it's being tactical. It's not being fearful. Mm-hmm. When you come to the champs, you best not miss. And the Bears had a shot right at the end of the game to uh, to end their season, their magical run this year. And they uh, weren't able but, to, like, to make like it I happen. Said last week, I mean, why pet the fucking tiger? Yeah. Like, why pet the tiger? Yeah. Like, why go up to Al Davis and say, oh, how are you, Mr. Davis? Oh, how the fuck do you think I am? You know, really, <laughs> you know the answer. Mm-hmm. Like, seriously. Yeah, don't ask stupid questions. That's rule number one. I have a question for you, Lombardi. This is coming from uh, a friend of the program, Matt Selman. Uh, He has asked me this, and he said, why can teams hire offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators, whatever type of coordinator you have from other teams? Don't the assistant coaches have multi-year deals that keep them locked up slash exclusive to their own teams the way players do? Uh, and I want to give you the floor. I mean, what what is the differentiation there between a player that is signed to a multi-year deal and a coordinator that is signed? It, does it just have to be signed off by the organization for them to go and do these interviews? All right, so coaching interviews. It, it, a coach, there's no designation for a coaching job in the NFL. If you are an intern, let's say, and you've signed a contract, or you are the offensive coordinator, and you have a contract with years left on it, okay? Mm-hmm. The only way you can leave that organization is if the club grants permission. And it, the permission must be granted in writing and must be filled out by a form. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So that being said, if say you are like Kevin Stefanski, who doesn't have, whose contract, uh, who doesn't have a, who, whose contract is expiring this year, right? If he has to wait two weeks till he can become a free agent, which gives the Vikings two weeks to sign him. Once the season's over, the second Tuesday after the season's over, he's a free agent. He doesn't have to ask for permission. He can go anywhere he'd like, just like John Filippo did last year after the Eagles season. His contract was up. He went anywhere he wanted. Nice. But when they hold your rights, when they have you under contract, you can't leave unless the team gives you permission. So what happens, say, you don't ask for permission, you go and you know do a shady dinner and you get an interview with the, with the team owner and that team finds out about you doing that. Do you automatically get fired on the spot? You, well, the team's going to get fined for tampering mm-hmm. and and they're going to lose the draft pick, and they're going to lose money. Oh wow! And no owner's going to no owner's going to do it. There's that's tampering rules. That's what happens down at the Senior Bowl. You know, coaches that are under contract. See, coaches want it both ways. They want to have the security, but they also want the freedom to get another job if they want one. Mm-hmm. And you know, so like last year, Stefanski, he wanted to interview for the Giants' OC job, but he was under contract. So what happened? Zimmer said, "No, you were here when we were shitty, and I didn't fire you." Now we're good. You can't leave. Okay, so you got to stay. Yep. So he promoted him this year, and now whether he comes back to Minnesota or he goes somewhere else to be an OC, I don't know. He interviewed for the Browns head coaching job. I can't imagine that they're going to give this guy the head coaching job there, but maybe they will. He's a bright young guy. So my point here is is if the only way you can have viable movement is, is if you allow your contract to expire, like Vic Fangio did last year. Mm-hmm. And now the Bears have to come to him and make him an offer. And if he gets another team competing, that's how the salaries of these coaches rise and rise and rise. Yeah. And uh, a quick question about one of the situations, this is dealing more with college and NFL teams, uh, but you have Cliff Kingsbury, a guy that was announced as uh, the offensive coordinator was going to come to USC. A lot of people are excited about that. It does seem like he has uh, reneged on that job and has decided to take interviews with uh, NFL teams for head coaching positions because uh, USC was not allowing him to do so. So now he has passed on that position. Th- this is all reported. I'm not sure if it's necessarily true, but what is that situation like? I mean, we've seen, I guess, like Nick Saban, Petrino, guys like that that are going from college to the NFL. But are there rules that the NFL has in place with the NCAA, or is it the NCAA has their rules and the NFL kind of you know follows along if they have to? Well, usually, typically, colleges. There's no rules, you know. So, mm-hmm. like, if a, like for example, Steve Sarkeesian, he was the quarterback coach at at USC, and we hired him to come to the Raiders in 2004. In 2005, he was like, I, "I'm done with pro. I don't want to be in pro. I'm going to go back to USC." And Al Davis was like, "I'm not letting him back. He can't fucking go back. He's not going back." And he just went back because there's nothing in the, the, the NFL contract that prohibits governing the NC2A. Hmm. So he could just go back. Wow. And typically now I think it, I don't know this, but my gut instinct tells me that Cliff must have had written in there when he did this deal that he wasn't going to leave for another job. And because of that, you know, I think that that's probably why they could block him. Mm-hmm. But I don't see how they could block him. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting story. It also is one of those things where maybe if you drum up the idea that you are willing to sacrifice that job to get an NFL job, it helps uh, sort of in the PR world of things. But you also mentioned this before. It's not about being selected as an NFL head coach. It's about being elected as an NFL head coach. And that is why, you know, people throw out the name Vic Fangio and 
so far, no one's been able to bite on that. I mean, obviously, you know, the Bears will try to keep him uh, because he loves playing defense. Oh, they'll keep him. Yeah. I mean, and Denver and Denver's going to talk to him, but whether, you know, he may be too gruff for Denver. I mean, he may tell Elway to go fuck himself, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, who knows? You know, it's done. Mike Broncos giving Vic Fangio his best chance yet. This is probably his best chance. And I, did, I had a former player that played with Vic Fangio. I won't say his name, but he told me that he wasn't sure that Vic wanted to be a head coach, that he enjoyed coaching the defense and kind of doing his own thing and operating independently. So there could be a little bit of that in there. It's not always, you know, a one to two that everyone wants to make that jump. Sometimes people are happy where they are. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true because after you've been burnt, after you haven't gotten a head coaching job for long enough, you say, you know what, I'm not this, maybe it's just not the cards for me, right? Yeah, exactly. So you just say, screw it, you know? Uh, another name that you threw out, I think you wrote for The Athletic uh, about this guy, and that's the defensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens, Don Martingdale, uh, a guy that is 55 years old, a guy that probably should get a shot at one of these head coaching vacancies. But right now, uh, it seems like no one's biting on the bait there, uh, seeing what he's been able to do with that defense in Baltimore. Yeah, like nobody wants defensive coaches. I think it's just unbelievable when you watch this weekend and you see how good defensive coaches have been. You know, a great defensive coach who can, you know, play calling on defense is so important. And Martindale has been a great play caller for them. I mean, go back to the game that they won last week against the Browns. I mean, it was a great play call on fourth down, and he made a win. But, you know, what we're looking for is the young Sean McVay. Whatever happened to the young Bill Belichick, the young great defensive mind? Because people think that that's what's going to sell tickets. I mean, I think Martindale is overqualified to be a head coach. He's been around Al Davis. He's been around some really good players and and Ray Lewis and Terrell Suggs, they all stand up for him. He's seen winning. He's won a Super Bowl. I mean, he's got experience. And so when he walks in the room, the players can look at him and say, I think we've got a chance here. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, that's one of those weird things where it does seem like everyone, the Sean McVay effect is very real at this point, where teams want to bring in the young, uh, you know, well-groomed, handsome, offensive-minded head coach to to change things around and make everything look different. But as you have said and on this program plenty of times, Sean McVay is a one-of-one. He's a very, uh, you know, separate situation because he's been around football for so long, but in a lot of rooms with a lot of people and understands how to handle that NFL situation. And a lot of these guys that are getting shots uh, to come into some of these, uh, you know, well respected programs may not have the same background or uh, the same ilk as a guy like Sean McVay. And one of those guys that just got hired, not to say anything negative about Matt LaFleur, but he goes he goes from Tennessee uh, with the Titans and that offense goes to Green Bay now uh, to work with Aaron Rodgers, one of the most uh, well-respected quarterbacks in the game. And you look at that that move right there, that domino effect with all these head coaches. What, what does that say and, and what does that you know show the world about you know what the hiring process will be this offseason with NFL head coaches? It's going to be all about Sean McVay. I mean, Sean McVay's neighbor might get a job. I mean, if the guy's good looking and he and he's young, he's liable to be a job because he's near him. I mean, look, just like take take Martindale for example. Martindale plays against Tennessee this year. All right, he allows the Titans with Matt Lafleur at the helm for 106 yards, 55 passes, 55 rushing, and 51 passes. And Martindale doesn't get an interview. Lafleur gets it. I think this is really about. I wrote the column, and George Young had the line about guarding your desk. And look, if, you know, on Twitter now, people are talking about what a genius Matt LaFleur is. You know, like, did anybody watch Tennessee play offense this year? Seriously. Mm-hmm. Did anybody watch them? Like, they had no creativity. They didn't attack anybody. And any good defensive coordinator they played against, they struggled. I mean, their, their quarterback didn't get developed. I mean, Mariota took a step backwards. I mean, seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a coach when Adam Gates got a job that told me, said, did anybody watch our offense this year? It's true. But look, you know, I mean, the reality of it is, is 
is, did anybody watch the Tennessee game? I, I mean, I think it comes down to Tate Frazier, that Mark Murphy, the, the president of the team, this is what he wants. He's wanted to splinter the Packers into where he's in control of the organization. Never happened before. Bob Harlan was the president. He always was off to the side, you know, and he allowed the football people to run. Now Murphy, he's, his, he's right in there. He fired, he fired, you know, Mike McCarthy on a Sunday after a game. He didn't need anybody's permission. He's the owner of the team. He's the de facto owner. And so he, hiring a young guy with no experience, you know, a classic guy to come in there, it tells you he's guarding his desk. If you read the column in The Athletic, actually, I wrote the column at 6 o'clock this morning, and it's been proven to be correct because this is the way the league operates. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, the people that are in power that want to make the decisions, I mean, we see the, the the trifecta down with the Jacksonville Jaguars. They're making pretty much all the decisions down there together. We, you know, we've seen it by committee, but, you know, Murphy right now with the Packers is a uh, a one-man band at this point, and he brings in his guy, an offensive-minded guy, so maybe Aaron Rodgers will be excited about that, that he'll be working on, on his side of the football. Uh, we've seen some frustration there with him losing one of his quarterback coaches going into the season that he was not a fan of that firing. So a lot of stuff to keep an eye on in Green Bay. Before we get out of here, I want to get uh, one last takeaway from you for uh, Wild Card Weekend. It could be one team that stood out to you as we move into the divisional round. It could be, uh, you know, just the theme of the entire weekend itself. But it, what was your major takeaway, Lombardi, uh, looking at all the games this Wild Card Weekend? Well, I think this weekend coming up, the takeaway is there's going to be one road team that wins this weekend coming up, maybe two at the most. Typically, if you go back to 2010, road teams are, I mean, home teams are 23 and nine in this in this in this category. But I thought Dallas, you know, they're going to have 50,000 of their own fans in the Coliseum. And I think that they have a defensive front that can put some pressure on. If David Irving can play, and I don't know if he's healthy enough to play, but if he can play, then I think it's going to really help them. And if they can control the football with their run game and force the Rams to have to play a little bit from behind and force Goff to play fast and take Gurley out of the game, gives them a chance. I would have told you earlier, that I thought the Chargers, but I just don't think the Chargers played well. I don't think they played well the last four weeks of the season offensively. Now, I do think the Chargers' defense will give the Patriots some trouble, but for me, I think it's pretty clear. I think the Cowboys have a chance to win that game, and we'll see if they can do it. I'm behind the clapper again. Tell Cousin Sal. Sign up for the clapper, and uh, all those years of coming out to Oxnard, California to do training camp finally may pay off so the you know Cowboys can get uh, basically a second home game here out in L.A. in the Coliseum, so a lot of people will be excited about that. People will be excited to see Shaw McVay versus the Clapper, see those two offenses battle it out. Uh, Jared Goff versus Dak Prescott, obviously Ezekiel Elliott versus Todd Gurley, uh, you know, two of the most uh, electric backs in all of football. So a lot of fun, a lot of uh, a lot of talking points that will come into that game. And, it, you know, it's in the big city of Los Angeles, which you will be coming to Los Angeles very soon, Lombardi. I'm excited to have you back on the West Coast. Yeah, I got to come back. I got a meeting for another book. So that's a good thing. You know, the book's doing so well. Take praise. I appreciate everybody's support. And so now got an opportunity maybe to write another one, so that'll be a good thing. So I'm going to be out there for a little bit and then come right back because I got stuff to do. I'll miss the cold weather take version. Yeah, no, you need a little break uh, out here. It, it's it's rainy today, so it's not as nice as you may expect out in Los oh, Angeles. Oh, yeah, but tough, tough, yeah. It that, that might be, be hardening up that Rams team, you know. Maybe this is good for Sean McVay. Yeah, uh, I'm going to spend all my time with the great man of all time, Mr. Coach George Raveling. Uh, this will be two of the best days of my life just to spend time with him 
and listen to him talk. It, it'll be, I, I got a full notebook full of stuff when I come back. So I'm excited. I'm very excited for you. And uh, Coach Raveling is obviously a big fan of him on this program as well. And uh, we'll keep an eye of all the wisdom that you get uh, imparted upon and we'll continue to share on GM Street. We will be back on Friday. We'll do the Friday forecast with Lombardi and we will break down all the divisional games this weekend. Until then, thanks for listening to GM Street, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. We will see you on Friday. Thank you, Tate Frazier.